invite you to have a seat. My name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a privilege to be able to bring the word to you this morning. And before I do, I want to just tell you a quick story about my adventures uh, this week. So from time to time, I find myself traveling, and I uh, Monday was one such day, and that night we were in a hotel somewhere in West Virginia, in the heart of West Virginia, real West Virginia. If you've been to Martinsburg, that's fake West Virginia. But I was in the real place just recently, and uh, it was Monday night, and I didn't have a whole lot to do, and the, the guys that I was with, they all went to bed because they're old, and I'm not old, in case you were wondering, and so I went ahead and I, uh, I went down to the lobby. It was only like 8.30, 9 o'clock, and I got my, my Bible out, and I just began to sit there, and I was working on my iPad, and so it didn't really look like I was working on my Bible, and I had these two young men, and they come and sat in the chairs right next to me, and they I began to pull some drinks out of their bags, and we're just talking and having a good time, and they began to ask me some questions, and I asked them some questions, and then they asked me, what do I do for a living? And I was like, now is the time. <laughs> if they only knew what was about to happen. And I did begin, the Lord opened up an opportunity for me to share the gospel with these two young men. I want to invite you to pray for them. Their names are Brad and Zach. And I had the opportunity to share the, the gospel with Brad and Zach. And it was really neat just to see conviction on their hearts and in their eyes, tears, um, even at some points, and communication after that. And it was a really a, just a great time. And I want to just say this to you, just full confession. I, I'm not a great evangelist. I wish that I was. I wish that I could tell you this morning that Brad and Zach both uh, repented of their sin that night, although once uh, claimed that they did. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure, but I wish I could tell you that just right there I began to play the piano that was behind me and gave the altar call, and they, they wept and repented of their sin and were baptized right then. I'd love to say that something like that happened, but it, it didn't happen. And I wish that I would be more active. I wish that I could tell you every single week that today I've, I've shared the gospel with this many people, and it's, it's just not the truth. But I will say this, as in my life as a Christian, as I'm growing and, and the Lord is just working and sanctifying me and, and just putting the burden of the gospel in my heart, not as if it is a burden for me to bear, but a blessing rather, as I think of that, there's been one tool, or many tools, but one tool in particular here recently that's been an encouragement to me, and that's this book right here, Turning Everyday Conversations into Gospel Conversations. And so I'm a pastor. You guys know that. I like to study the Bible. I read it all the time. I, I've got books upon books upon books that I like to read that are really high level and some are you know, intermediate, and I'm not that smart, but I try. But how do I turn the gospel and the truths and the blessed truths of the gospel into just an everyday conversation? Uh, sometimes it's difficult to find that on-road uh, into that conversation and just Jesus juke somebody with a gospel karate chop. How do you do that? Uh, how, do you, how do you do that? Well, this book is just an insanely practical tool for you. Um, it's turning everyday conversations into gospel conversations. We have a couple back at the resource table. Um, this one here is also available. I'm going to set it right here. So if you're interested in getting that book, it's yours. Uh, you can, what's that? Oh, who wrote it? Uh, somebody, Jimmy Scroggins and uh, Steve Wright. So there's a couple back there. I think they're like five bucks, but uh, I'll leave this one right here. So if you, if you feel like the Lord's leading you to read that book and you're really going to read it, come up and get it after the service. Um, or maybe when I pray here in just a moment, you can sneak up real quickly and grab it. Uh, I'm not exactly sure uh, if that would work, but we'll, we'll let it fly. This morning, we are continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark. And so as we move uh, through this uh, first chapter, um, it, it might seem like it's taking a while. You might see, uh, well, when we read it, we read immediately like a, a dozen times in the first chapter, but why are you just reading it so slow and working through it so slow? And, and forgive me for that, but I, there's so much good stuff in this, this book, as in all of the, the, the books of the Bible. But, but I really want to, to slow down, to continue to slow down, to keep in low gear, granny gear, if you will, and to work through this book and to, to mine out as much as we possibly can. And so this morning we'll be in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. And so we, we'll try to, maybe you think, well, this will be a short sermon because it's only two verses. Uh, joke's on you. But let's look at the scriptures this morning. The Bible says this in verse 12. It says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. I ask God to bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Father, this truly is our prayer now that you would bless this. Father, we've come from different directions. We're in different areas. We're in different stages and different phases. And yet this word is relevant for us this morning. It's authoritative over your people. It's authoritative over all of creation. 
and it's sufficient for us this morning. No matter where we are, no matter where we're going or where we're coming from, we come to you now. We take a moment and rest under the preaching of your word. Spirit, we pray that you would empower me as I, as I preach your word and that your church would hear it. We ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus because we have no other name to pray in and no hope in any other. Amen. So this morning, again, we'll take a brief look at the temptation of Jesus. Last week we looked at the baptism of Jesus, and now we look at the temptation. And there is a connection between the two. We'll see it in just a moment. There's a, a strong connection. It's not just happenstance and didn't, just didn't randomly happen this way. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark records these accounts taking place just as they did. As we do look at this text this morning, these two verses, I want to just bring this one sentence to bear. Or this, it's actually two sentences to bear. And I want you to kind of suspend them over the text this morning, over a side, as we look and walk through these two verses word by word. And that's this. There are no enchanted methods to resisting temptation. There's no enchanted, there's no magical method to resisting temptation. Victory, listen to this, victory over sin will only be realized in your life when you are found in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's no magical method. I can't give you five steps this morning to say that if you do these five things, even if you act just like Jesus does in this passage, that you will resist sin. I, I can't tell you that. That's not true. Just as we saw in the baptism, we can't please the Father unless we be in Christ. As Jesus exits the water, the heavens are rent open, as Mark says. The Spirit of God descends on Jesus, and the voice of God the Father booms out, This is my beloved Son. In Him I am well pleased. That cannot be said of you unless you're found in Christ. And you will not experience victory over temptation unless you also are found in Christ. That's our only hope. With that in mind, and, and it's kind of set to the side and suspended over our time this morning, I want to give you four points as well that we'll just quickly walk through. I, I promise it will be quick. Relative to me, of course, but it'll be quick. The first is this. It's a command. It is a step. that We should submit to the Spirit's control. So number one, submit to the Spirit's control. Number two, believe what God says. These might sound so simple. I think they will be helpful for you as we walk through them. Believe what God says. Number three, rely on his care. Rely on on his care. And fourth, if, again, if you're taking notes, be found in Christ. Be found in Christ. And so with those uh, to the side and, and thrown out there, let's start in verse number one. So it says the Spirit. Of course, this is speaking of the Holy Spirit. It's the third person in the Trinity. It's the same Spirit that descends on Jesus in the previous paragraph. It's the same Spirit uh, who is now anointing Jesus presently as he's led into the wilderness. The Spirit forces him to penetrate more deeply into the wilderness. He's already in the wilderness, but the Spirit is, is forcing him to, and causing him to go deeper into the wilderness. Again, here it says immediately. immediately. And Mark, again, he's hurrying us along, right? He wants us to move really fast. We're going as fast as we can, as fast as you can with me. And this is what he's saying immediately. It's the next thing that Mark wants us to know. You'll see why in just a moment. It says, immediately the Spirit drove him out, drove him out into the wilderness. This is a fascinating term of uh, use of, of this term, uh, ekbalo. I'm going to teach you a little bit of Greek, not that I'm some kind of a genius, but I always love this word ekbalo because ek means out. If you look around here, you'll see exit, and I, I don't know what it means, uh, but ek, ex means out. And balo, it just, you think, when I always think about uh, balo, I think of casting a ball. Okay, and so it means to, to literally cast out, to throw out. And the Spirit of God, immediately, right, as he comes up out of the water, he comes up and walks up onto the bank, it drives him out into the wilderness. What's interesting about this term, ekbalo, or, being, or to cast out, is that Mark uses it 17 times. So we know the context. I love it when we, we find a verb that's been used in that same chapter, by, or that same book, rather, by the same author, because it really helps us to see a, a, a good uh, spread of how this verb can actually be used in Greek. 
And most of the time that Mark uses it, you're going to be shocked by this, most of the time is when Mark is talking about Jesus exercising a demon. When he's, again, exercising, he's casting out a demon. So it means to send out. Or as the New American Standard Bible says, I love it, impelled, impels. It's a strong verb. It literally means to, to throw out, to force out. And it brings about this idea of compulsion, typically against one's will. Jesus casts these demons out, what, against their will. But this, here it's used to speak of Jesus. And that the Holy Spirit is casting Jesus out. He's impelling, he's, he's forcing him, in a sense, to go into the wilderness. An inner urge, the Spirit of God, fills Jesus, causing him to go out. And here's the thing. Mark, Mark uses this term quite often, with, again, with, the, with talking about Jesus casting out demons. But when you combine cast out, sends out, forces out with immediately, it gives it even more force. But here's the thing, it's not, it's not necessarily a force, it's not an overcoming and unwillingness. As much as it is, it's, it's pointing to the divine necessity that Jesus must go into the wilderness. The Spirit of God is saying, this is what you will do, you will go into the wilderness. And Jesus, not, not unwillingly, submits and goes into the wilderness. Here's what... Here's what Mark's saying, that, that the Spirit of God has perfect control over Jesus. He has perfect control over Jesus. And he's able to steer him and, and, and direct him in his humanity. Just as Jesus has perfect control over demons, the Holy Spirit of God had perfect control over Jesus. Jesus submits, and the demons are forced to submit. And so the Spirit of God leads Jesus, drives him out violently, as it were, into the wilderness. Here's the first point. Jesus is, under the, Jesus is submitted to the, to the will of the Spirit of God. Are you? Are you this morning submitting to the Spirit's control in your life? What's driving you this morning? Why do you do the things that you do? I would assume that most of you had yesterday off. The freedom to choose whatever you would do, and some of you still got up early and were drove out to something. Something inside of you impelled you. It forced you to go do something. Maybe you got up and you read your, your Bible. Maybe, maybe you were behind this week, and so you thought, I need, I need scriptures. Just like as you, you wake and you're thirsty, you wake up and you say, I need the scripture. Maybe that was you this weekend. Maybe it was you yesterday morning. Maybe you woke up, and this isn't so terrible, but maybe you woke up and you said, something's driving me and forcing me to go shop. Maybe it's because you needed something in particular, or maybe you had some other more sinister reason. I'm not sure. Maybe it was desire to go visit some family or friend, but something inside of you was, was leading you to do that. But ultimately, I'd like for you just to consider your life as a whole. What are you submitting to? What is controlling you? What is driving you? What's your motivation in life? Maybe it's an animate object. Maybe it's something inanimate. If it's anything but the Spirit of God, then I would employ you, I would implore you this morning. Submit yourself to the Spirit's control. Submit yourself to the Spirit's control. This is one step that we take as we experience victory over temptation in our lives. And while, again, it's not some enchanted magical principle, we're only able to do this when we are found in Christ. But as we're found in Christ, this is what we do. We submit to the Spirit's control. As we move on, I think it's worth noting that here we see the Holy Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness. Matthew tells us that he's led into the wilderness. Why? He's led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is what Matthew tells us. But here Mark leaves that out, and Mark's, Mark's not writing something contrary. Matthew gives us a little bit more detail. But why is it that the Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness 
to face off with the devil, as it were, and so many times that we're told to run from temptation. Why is Jesus, led by the Spirit, led right, in, right into the presence of where Satan will tempt him, and we're told to run? I think there's a lesson in there for us. We might think with confidence that we can face off against Satan ourselves, go toe-to-toe with the man with the pointy tail and the pitchfork. This is foolishness. We're to flee temptation. We're to, we're to run from now. Are we to be afraid as if we're somehow defeated? Of course not. In Christ, we experience victory. But at the same time, we don't wander into temptation with some kind of a full confidence that we can somehow overcome because in and out of ourselves, we cannot. See point one. Submit to the leadership, the, the control of the Spirit of God. He does not lead us into temptation. He led Jesus into temptation. No, he didn't tempt him, but he led him there. And Jesus there won a battle, a great battle that we enjoy even this morning. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But I thought that was worth noticing and mentioning. There at the end of verse 12, it says that he was led into the wilderness. The wilderness. Here we see it again. And then 13, it says, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days. So this theme, we've been seeing it. We, we spent some time in, in uh, the Old Testament a few weeks ago, and we looked at this, uh, this theme of the wilderness and what it represents. And here again, we see it this morning. It's no accident that this continues to come back up. John mentioned it in chapter 3 and verse 4. That's where he was at. It's also the place here that Jesus was tempted. He was baptized, and he's also tempted. But what's interesting is here, he, he leaves the general, general area of the wilderness as we, get, as we talked about a moment ago, sometimes when we think about the Jordan River, we, we, we think of the Potomac or something like that or the Mississippi and some great beautiful delta with lots of green lush plants. And that's just not what, what's happening there around the banks of the Jordan. It's a very small river. Again, it can't even be called a river. Oftentimes it's, it's just a, a large stream. And it's literally right there above the Dead Sea. There's nothing beautiful there. There's, no, there's just... Craggy rocks and cliffs and holes and, and salt, and hot sun and cold nights. This is the wilderness. And yet Jesus is called to go even deeper into the wilderness. He's from the wilderness even deeper. We'll see more about that in just a minute. But this is where the, the wild beasts are. Here in this deep portion of the wilderness. And remember we... The wilderness and the, in between the New and the Old Testament, they, when they thought of the wilderness, when they thought about the desert, they thought about it being an evil, spiritually dark place. Here Jesus is led out by himself, all alone, into the face of temptation. And what is it about the wilderness? Why does it keep showing up? Well, think back to the book of Exodus. Remember, think about the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb, as the Jews, the Hebrews, were about to exit Egypt. So they're about to leave that place and be rescued. What does God, what does Yahweh instruct them to do? Well, they're to, they're to sacrifice a lamb. They're to capture its blood. They're to put that up upon the doorpost. There was quite a bit of, of other instructions associated with that process and that ritual. Then that night angel of death comes over and what happens in essence springs the lock but the passover lamb what did it represent it was a picture of jesus christ it was a picture of as john would say the lamb of god that what takes away the sins of the world and so the passover lamb it prefigured jesus the lamb of god blood for blood and then we look at the Red Sea. What was the Red Sea a portion of? They, after the Passover, the next morning, they all assemble. And what do they do? They've already got their stuff together. What do they do? They literally walk out of Egypt. And what are they, where are they heading? They're heading to the wilderness. We'll get there in just a minute. But what stands in the way? What stands in the way? The Red Sea. And they come up to the Red Sea. They're desiring salvation, as it were, the sign, the completion Freedom from Egypt, the waters part, and they cross on dry land. 
drunk with pride, the Egyptians file in after and they are consumed with the judgment of God, consumed by the judgment of God. So the Red Sea was a picture of baptism we looked at a moment ago. And then what, what's the wilderness, though? What is it for the Christian this morning? What does it prefigure? What prefigures the Christian life? The wilderness is the Christian life. And it's full of testing. If you think about the children of Israel, how many tests did they face in the, in the wilderness there, in their wanderings? Let me ask another question. How many tests did they fail in their wanderings? Time and time again, you get to become a little pompous when you're a child in Sunday school and you hear about these foolish people, the Israelites, who wandered and test after test, they failed. You think, how could they be so foolish? And then we come to this text this morning and we realize, no, that's, that's us too. Because how many, how many tests, how many temptations have we come face to face with and lost as we've wandered in a sense in this Christian life. You see, from the time of Adam to the present, there's never been a man, woman, boy, girl that could walk through the wilderness and not fall to temptation. It's never happened. It's never taken place. And what is Jesus doing? He is going into the wilderness. Why? To defeat temptation to stand against Satan, to do what Adam could not do, to do what your father and your pastor and your brother and your mother, and everybody you know has failed, and yet Jesus goes into the wilderness to do what? To be victorious. And so the wilderness wandering, it prefigures the Christian life in a way. Where the Israelites failed, where Adam and Abraham failed, where you and I, we failed. Jesus, what does he do? He is successful. He's victorious. And how long is he in the wilderness? There in verse 13, it tells us that he's there for 40 days. 40 days, it, it, it harkens back to the time of Moses on the mountain. How long is he there? He's there for 40 days in Exodus chapter 24. It alludes to Elijah's journey to the sacred mountain in 1 Kings chapter 19. It connects us to Jesus' introduction to his, of his disciples in Acts chapter 1. Even perhaps talks about the, the wandering of Israel for 40 years in that wilderness, as Deuteronomy 8 tells us. And so they're there for 40 days. Jesus, or 40 years. Moses is there for 40 days. Elijah's there for 40 days. And Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. Speaking of this, 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 this period of time, I want you to zoom out for just a moment. Mark gives the account of the temptation of Jesus Christ, but it's two verses. It's very brief, and he only tells us a little tiny bit where Matthew has given us quite a bit more detail, and he says he tells us the account in 11 verses. And then in Luke chapter thir uh, Luke in the book of Luke, he gives us 13 verses describing the temptation of Jesus. And they tell us exactly what Jesus is even tempted by. Temptations that Satan throws at him. But here in Mark, there's no specific temptations that are given. He only tells us he's tempted for 40 days. It's really all we know according to Mark. He doesn't even tell us that Jesus is victorious over Satan in that moment. What is Mark saying then? What is the Holy Spirit demonstrating for us then this morning? What are we to take away? What are we, how are we to think about that? I believe that Mark is emphasizing this. That Jesus' entire ministry was in a, a continuous encounter with the devil himself. It was a continuous temptation. In Matthew, it says that the, when Jesus, the last and final time there in that record, says, it is written, what, is ha what happens? The devil departs. And why? When, what, what's, what's the devil's next play? He'll look for a better time, another time. Did that another time come? Of course it did. So we like to think that Jesus was just tempted there in the wilderness, but that's not true. It's not true at all. Now, why was Jesus tempted right then? We talked about these 40 days budding up right next and following right after the baptism because Jesus was set aside. He was anointed as the Messiah there before all these people. And Jesus himself, the Son of God, the incarnate one, 
Here's the testimony of the Father, which says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus is then tested. He's driven into the wilderness to test. Does he believe this? Well, he's succumbed to a temptation. What's the temptation? It's not unrelated to the pronouncement of the Father over the Son. The Father says, In you I am well pleased. And the temptation is connected to that. Will you go without eating for 40 days? As the Father's directed you to do, would he really do that to somebody whom he loves? The Father is sending you to the cross. Would he really do that to someone that he loves? If you were his beloved, would he make you humble yourself? Would he lead you to do that? Would the Spirit of God send you into the wilderness? Would all these things take place? Jesus is tempted in accordance to the exact thing that God the Father has just told him. Here's what Mark's saying by not demonstrating or showing us and recording the victory. Giving us so little information. He's, I think he's saying this, that Jesus' temptation never ended. We look in other parts of Scripture, and it says that Jesus was tempted in like points as we are. Yet what? Without sin. And so there was more than just three temptations. You faced three temptations this morning. So surely Jesus has faced far more than just three. His life was an unending, seemingly, an unending temptation. But this particular confrontation with Satan is emphasized there in the wilderness. It's a victory that we get to witness. And Mark is recording it. Why? Because we need to know what? That Jesus is the Son of God. That he is the Messiah. The fact that he can defeat temptation and stand firm in the promises of God in the face of temptation demonstrates to us that he is far different and far greater than any man that has ever gone before. And that he truly is the Messiah. And that's why Mark got here as quick as he could. That's why he's going so fast. He wants us to know that what he said at the beginning, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that this for a Jew, this for a Roman would demonstrate to us that no other man can do what Jesus has just done. Moving on, it says that he was being tempted by Satan. Satan is the English form of the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word adversary. And so Jesus' great adversary is there present. Our great adversary is there present, the tempter. And that's what he's doing. And that word for, for tempting, being tempted, it could be testing, it could be tempting. Typically when it's used of God or Satan, it's, it's meant for tempting, drawing you to sin. When that word is used by, by God or by Jesus, it's testing So here we can assume that the adversary is truly tempting, desiring to pull Jesus down, desiring to derail him. You say, well, he's still three years from the cross. Well, yes, but if he could stop him now, it makes sense in your mind and maybe in Satan's. If he could derail him three years out, the garden is so far away, why not get him in the wilderness? The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to test him. Not to try to get him to sin, but Satan does desire that he sin. The Spirit of God wants to demonstrate both to Jesus and to us that he is the Messiah. He can overpower Satan. And here in this wilderness, with no fruit, we see the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecy that the seed of the woman would crush the, the, the seed of the serpent. Jesus demonstrates that he can do what no other man can do. And Satan's head begins to hurt. What does Satan tempt him in? He tempts him in his humbling. He tempts him in his submission. What had God called him to do? To humble himself. The Spirit of God had led him in that way. Even just to put on human flesh. It was the height of humility. And then to be baptized by a sinful man, even more. And then to be led out, to be drove out into the wilderness without what was necessary to the body, what was needful for the body, 
to be subjected to the onslaught of Satan, this was the height, a new height that Jesus would experience. And Satan is calling to him to reach for his privilege that he so deserved, to reach for his position of authority and power, and Jesus doesn't do it. You see, Mark wants us to see that Jesus had power over Satan and the temptation. And what is, we, we also see several times in just a few moments here in the, in the book of, in the chapter 1 of the book of Mark, that Jesus has power over evil spirits. And this is a key connection here. He has power over, uh, authority over, uh, power through temptation and power and authority over these spirits. He's stronger than the one who's confronted him. Jesus is able to plunder his house instead of the other. Jesus is tempting to demonstrate his power and prestige in a sinful way. But the fact that Jesus doesn't verifies, this is ironic, it verifies that he has power over the demons. He has power over Satan himself. Think about this. How many countless of folks had walked into that water, claimed repentance, and walked out, back to the city of God, back to Jerusalem, and what did they recommence to doing? Sinning. And Jesus, he who had never sinned, walked out, was baptized. The pronouncement of the Father was upon him. The lighting of the Spirit of God upon him. And he goes out into the wilderness to face off with Satan, and he is victorious with nothing to eat. And so again, what is Mark pointing to? Is he pointing to a method to defeat sin and Satan? Well, we can learn surely of how Jesus defeats Satan here. No, he's not telling us exactly what we should be doing. What is he saying? He's saying that you are not your Messiah. And get this, a future you is not your Messiah. You might say, well, one day, one day I will be better. One day I will be able to defeat sin. And right now I'm being defeated by it. But Jesus, I know, but one day I will be able to defeat it. In some sinful way, even in that moment, you've thought of yourself as being the Messiah. And Mark doesn't want that. He's saying, you are not Messiah. There is no hope in and of yourselves. You must be found in Jesus. And your only hope to stand against Satan and his onslaught, Satan and his temptation and his ploys, is to be found in Jesus the Messiah. He's the only one. So the Spirit of God leads Mark to include this in just this way to emphasize and to underline that truth. Jesus is the Son of God. And so John the forerunner, he says so. God the Father and the Holy Spirit, they demonstrate that he is the Messiah, and here the fact that he can overcome temptation, something that no man has ever been able to do, verifies with emphasis that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So while Mark doesn't list out specific temptations that Jesus faced, other writers do, but we know that Jesus was tempted to turn stones into bread to force angels to save him. And he was tempted to bow down to Satan in order to save himself and to bypass the cross. And you might say, well, what does this have to do with me? I would never be tempted to say or to do these things that Jesus was tempted to do. I've never been tempted to make stones into bread. And so what does this arbitrary temptation that Jesus the Messiah faced that I would never face, what does that have to do with me? I've never been tempted to, to be saved as I fell off of a, of a, a steep precipice. Or to bow down to Satan in some formal way. You might say, I, I, what does this have to do with me? It's, you might say it has nothing, and I would answer to you, wrong. Wrong. <laughs> We're tempted in every way, just as Jesus was in that moment, to use everything around us to bring glory to ourselves. And we have a knack for it. We're gifted. We're cursed. To turn anything. You say, well, I can't turn stones to bread. But somehow you can find a way to take some inanimate object into sin. Into glorifying yourself in a sinful, obnoxious way. You have a proclivity for that. And it's unique. Unique to humans. 
So the fact that Jesus can say, no matter what, no matter what it is, I'm not going to use anything or anyone to bring glory to myself in some way that the Father has not determined, that the Spirit of God has not led me to do. I'm not going to step out of turn and find a way to get what I want and even what was promised to him. He was promised that all the things that Satan had, that he would have. And here was his chance. He could get those things and bypass the cross, but it would be against the Father's will. So he ignored these desires in him. He was led by the Spirit. He trusted and believed what the Lord said about him, what God the Father had said about him. So you are tempted like Jesus. And yet he was without sin. To give in to temptation is to demonstrate a disbelief or disregard for what God had said. Remember, you say, well, what's the connection between temptation and baptism? At the baptism, God the Father says, I am pleased. You're my beloved son. And then in the, in the wilderness, he's tempted to believe that that is not true. So we hear things like this. You won't surely die. Disregard that. Don't believe that. What God said is not true. You might think, hear something like this. Did he even say that? Is that really what it means? You might hear something like this. This is what Jesus heard. He doesn't really love you. You're not his beloved son. He just says that. You haven't pleased him yet. He's not satisfied in you. You can't satisfy him. You're incomplete. You'll never be filled. You'll never be satisfied. You'll never be forgiven. Church, you need to know that temptation is coming. And for many, for all, it has come. It has come. And so what are we to do? We are to believe what God says. What did Jesus do in the wilderness? He believed what God said. Matthew tells us. What did he say? Luke tells us. What did he say? It is written. He quoted the Father. So we are to believe what God says. We think about this picture of Jesus and the victory that he wins there in the wilderness. On one hand, I want to just tell you, it's not you. Right? Well, we know, in the, we know we've heard it enough now that you're not David. You're not defeating Goliath. That's Jesus. And you're actually the, the shaking, soiled Israelite on the side of the, of the valley there. We wouldn't be so foolish to believe that we are Jesus in this story. And so why would we say, I can defeat Satan? All I have to do is quote a Bible verse and I can defeat Satan. This is not our experience. The, the perfect, victorious nature of Jesus throughout his life over temptation and through the attacks of Satan, they will only be his to enjoy, except for those who are found in Christ. And for those in Christ, the victory over sin that Jesus won that day and throughout his life is our victory also, but only if we're in Christ. When he resisted and subsequently defeated Satan there in the wilderness, he did with no other he did what no other man had previously done. And what no man after him would do apart from his power and his presence. But on the other hand, and in a practical manner, he is in, in fact demonstrating a method for resistance from the devil. But no tool no principle will be effective for you, again, if you're not in Christ. And so, frankly, for Christians this morning, this is, it's imperative that you get this this morning. Because we could say, well, I'll, just, I'll be a good Awana clubby, a clubber, a sparky, and I'll memorize more verses. That was helpful before, and maybe you'll do that, and maybe it will be helpful. But that's not going to lead anybody away from temptation. It's not going to rescue you from temptation first we must be in Christ the Bible says in Psalm chapter 119 verses 9 through 11 wherewithal shall young man cleanse his ways by taking heed thereto according to thy word with my whole heart I have sought thee oh let me not wander from thy commandments thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against you how shall a young man, or anybody for that matter, cleanse his ways? How will he remain pure? 
How will you avoid lust? How will you fight temptation? By taking heed unto the word, the word of God. Psalmist says, thy word, your word, I've hid in my heart. I've memorized it. I've stored it up, the ESV says, that I might not sin against you, God. But I want you to know that knowing the word is different than knowing the word. You might know the word, but I would ask you, do you really know the word? You say, well, what's the difference between that? Aren't you saying the same thing? Yes, I, I am, but there is a difference. Some of you can say that you've met the mayor of Hagerstown, but do you really know him? You know him, but do you know him? You say, well, I've met this person or I've met that person. Do you really know them? Somebody recently said, hey, I, 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 recent, I, met, I, I know my wife. I know my wife. Well, do, you really, do you really know her? Have you, well, I haven't talked to her yet, but I'm pretty sure that we're going to get married. Well, there's a big difference between knowing that she'll be your wife and knowing that she is your wife, right? Man went to the doctor, and the doctor said, hey, take these two and call me in the morning. Take two and call me in the morning. So the patient uh, he, he seemed relieved to hear the good news. The relief's going to be on the way. Prescription's actually called into the pharmacy, and so he gets in his car, he rides over to the pharmacy. He goes to the pharmacist, and she hands out the medicine, and he takes the medicine from the pharmacist. Then he proceeds to take them to his house, and what's more, when he gets home, he takes them into his house, and the next morning, it comes and it goes, and the doctor doesn't hear from the patient. Early afternoon, the doctor, wouldn't you love to have a doctor that actually told you to take two and call me in the morning and then actually expected to hear from you and answer the phone when you called them? Wouldn't that be great? But anyway, this particular doctor, he is that kind, and he finds out, hey, my, my patient hasn't called me, and so he calls the patient, and the, the grouchy patient answers the, the call and expresses his concern and, and uh, or the doctor expresses his concern and interest in, in the success of the medicine. Was it, self, was it successful? Was it helpful? I believe it would be. To his surprise, the patient was no better at all. Why? Well, the patient said, I took the pills home. But what had he done? He'd taken them from the pharmacist. He'd taken them out to his vehicle. He'd taken them to his home. He'd even taken them into his home. But what had he not done? He'd not internalized them. And you say, that's a silly story. Who would ever do that? Well, we do it all the time. We do it all the time. We hear scriptures. We store them up in our hearts even, as Psalm 119 says, and yet we don't actually take them internally. Some way, in some form or fashion, they don't actually sink into our minds. Why? We haven't meditated on them. We haven't chewed on them for a while. And so to say that you know scripture and that you've just hit it in your heart is not enough. What has Jesus done here in the wilderness? He has meditated on the word of God. He's internalized it. And how are we to be victorious? How are we to cleanse our ways, as it were? We are to internalize the word of God. So memorizing and hiding it in our hearts is not enough. Joshua 1.8, the command goes out. This book of the law shall not, what? Depart from your mouth, which by the way, if it's in your mouth, that means it's coming out, you're talking about it. But you shall meditate on it day and night. That's one way to really meditate on something is to talk about it. So that you may be able to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Joshua is commanded, meditate. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates, how often? Day and night. Day and night. So when you realize you struggle with pride, it's not enough to look up 15 verses that have pride in your strongest concordance. Write them down on a piece of paper and then just work through these. Pride comes before a fall, haughty spirit before destruction. I know it now. I got it. How is that going? Just knowing those words in that order, how is that going to give you victory over pride? No, no, no. Meditating on the scriptures. And not just on scriptures that have the whatever it is that you're dealing with in the title or in the passage, but really wrestling and chewing and breaking them down. You see, Bible memory, again, it's not the key to victory over sin. Being found in Christ is the key. 
As we are found in Christ, then we meditate on the truths of the gospel, the truths of Christ, and the truths we find in the word of God. And in there, we find even more victory in a practical sense. The Bible goes on to say that he was with the wild animals. So again, he leaves the general area of the wilderness where this baptism takes place. There's lots of people there. It is the wilderness, but there's lots of people there. But then he goes to another level of the wilderness. He goes to a more isolated place, and, and Mark chooses to say here it's where the wild beasts are. That's where he's at. He's with wild beasts. Why would he say wild beasts? Well, wild beasts typically don't hang out where humans do. You might say, well, I'm kind of disappointed. I went to Alaska, and I didn't see any bears. Well, there were a lot more bears in Anchorage when there weren't any people living in Anchorage. Now that people live there, what happens? Oh, well, the bears don't want to hang out with you. They think we smell weird and, you know, well, maybe a little bit violent, so they... They move on. Maybe, they th- maybe we think the same of them, but either way, they move on, right? These wild beasts do. But Jesus has gone where no people are, where it's ultimately unutterly dangerous, and where the wild beasts reside. So the presence of the wild beasts, they even more add to the terror of the location and, and the, just the, the, the intensity of Jesus' state, this heightened state of, of danger here coupled with temptation. It's a terrible place for him to be. And then what does it say? And the angels were ministering to him. There at the end of verse 13. And this seems a bit odd. What does it mean to have an angel minister to you? Well, that that verb, it literally means to feed, to serve, to wait upon. It's used to folks preparing food and waiting on you, supplying food and necessities, what the body needs. We learn in, from Matthew chapter 4, verse 11, that when, when the devil leaves, at that point, what happens? Then the angels come and they minister to Jesus. He fasted for 40 days. He's tempted in that time. When the temptation is over, Jesus is victorious. God sends what? He sends his messengers. He sends his angels to provide for the son's needs. And what does that include? It includes bodily nourishment. So they serve him. They serve him. And what, is, what does this offer for us then? What are we to do? Well, we're to rely on his care for us. You are to rely on his care for you. Jesus said often, you have, you have meat that you, I have meat that you don't know of. Well, who fed this guy? How's he going? Where does he get this energy? How's he able to do what he's doing? And Jesus says to his disciples, I have, I have nourishment that you don't even know of, that you've not seen, you've not tasted of either, not yet. He's cared for by the angels. He's demonstrating to us a reliance, not on knowledge, not on even nutritional statistics that we can download from the internet, but he's inviting us, he's encouraging us, he's demonstrating for us that we are to rely on God. Why? Because he will care for us. He will care for us. I think one thing that's interesting to me is none of the other gospel writers that talk about this account tell us that Jesus was with the wild animals. And so you wonder, like, why, would, why would Mark tell us that? Well, one reason is obvious to me. Romans are city folk. They're city folk. How many lions and tigers and bears do you see running around downtown, right? You don't see a whole lot. And so Mark, having spent time in this wilderness, in this area, knowing the creatures that are about, is saying, hey, I know you probably haven't been to Jerusalem or Judea and the the desert areas and the wilderness around there, but let me just tell you, there's some wild beasts out there. So the fact that Jesus is out there, he's with some crazy critters. The worst thing you've run into today has been a spider or a scorpion there in your house. He's like, but those things are out in the wilderness, but there's far greater creatures out where Jesus was in that moment. And so he's helping to color for the, the Romans exactly where Jesus was. But I think there's another thing that, G, that Mark is pointing to, and it's very subtle. But I think he's signaling, signaling for us. Because remember, who, who's he writing to? He's writing to the Romans, Roman Christians. And what are they facing right now? They're facing a, a dire, intense persecution. And when he uses the words wild beasts, what do you think comes to mind? The minds of the Christians, many of them having scars, having been abused, having watched their loved ones, maybe their pastor, their elder, maybe one of their deacons last week, literally torn to bits by wild beasts. 
downtown in Rome? Yeah. Yeah. So whether Mark's pointing to that or not, I don't know, but here's what I do know. Jesus knows what it's like to face off with the wild beasts. He knows what it's like to be in a dangerous place. And even in those circumstances, in that situation, what did Jesus do? He relied on the care that the Father had for him. Why? How? God sent his angels to do what? To serve him. To minister to him. So what could a first century Christian going through an intense persecution, what could they take from this passage? That the Son of God, humbling himself, submitting himself to baptism, the Messiah, receiving the anointing of the Holy Spirit, being driven out into the wilderness to face off with Satan without food, intense temptation, and also to be present with the wild beast. What is Mark saying to the Christians? That Jesus, the Messiah, is enough. That he is enough. That he is the promised one of God. And that you don't have to be stronger, you don't have to be uh, more diligent in some sense in order to receive this blessing and declaration that God has for Jesus. You don't have to work for that that has been given to you already. And his angels will, that cared for Jesus for the Messiah, will also what? They'll also care for you. And that God will sustain you. So this is what Mark is pointing us to. We look in the life of Jesus and we see that Jesus submitted to the Spirit's control. Jesus believed what God said about him and he relied on his care. As we look at that this morning, we say, man, that's great. That's awesome. And Pastor Tim mentioned that sometimes we have rough weeks. You maybe say, I had a rough week and I anticipate having another rough week and I probably am going to be tempted. And now that I've seen Jesus be victorious, I too can be victorious. And if that's your statement this morning, you're going to be disappointed this week. Wouldn't it be nice if you were able to lift heavy objects? Maybe you have a need in your life to lift an object that is almost impossible, humanly speaking. How about 740 pounds? Could anybody here lift 740 pounds at one time? Pastor Tim's pretty tough. Maybe you have a need in your life and you say, I, I don't know how to lift 740 pounds. I, I couldn't bench press. One of the, 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 the people feared when they were children of, or even now they fear like being buried alive or something like that or falling from a high object. You know what my fear was? There was a, a man in our church who gave out candy and he was a very big man. And, I used to, and he would take uh, f- friends in my family, uh, neighbor, people in my family camping. And I, used to, and I remember my sister Wendy told me about this one time that they had this camper that had bunk beds. And I remember thinking, man, that would be so much fun to go camping. That would be so much fun. And I used to think, well, what if I was camping and the bed fell? I was on, I was on the bottom bunk and the top bed fell, fell, fell on me and I got trapped under there. And I would, I would have panic attacks and think, like, I literally could not lift. I'd be stuck and I would die. That's, that was one of my, my fears in life. And so maybe even in adulthood, some of our fears, they enter into adulthood with us. And now I'm beginning to think, how could I lift him off of me? How could I get this bed off of me? Maybe I go to YouTube and I watch a video of Julius Maddox from Owensville or Owensboro, Kentucky. On September 1st, 2019, what did he do? He lays down on a bench with no assistance, no machines, no nothing. And he lifts 739.6 pounds up over his head, 739.6 pounds, and he brings it down and he lifts it right back up. And he breaks the world record. After watching that, maybe you with me, you'd think from then on, now I've seen it. I know how to do it. If I'm ever in a bad situation, I saw how Julius Maddox, I saw what he did. I saw where he placed his feet. I saw where his hands were. I saw he picked the place out on the ceiling. I saw it all. I saw how he spit a little bit whenever he was pushing and he was holding his breath a little bit. And I saw all that. I saw the shirt and shoes. Listen, if we look at a video and we say, I've seen it done before, and then we so foolishly think that then we can do it, what will we do? We'll steam ahead into danger. We'll bring 
damnation upon ourselves. Remember, there's no enchanted methods to resisting temptation. Victory over sin will only be realized in your life when you are found in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so if we want victory over temptation, we can't watch a YouTube video. We can't just look to Jesus and say, now I know how to do these things. What must must we do? Number four, and it should be number one, we must be found in Christ. We must be found in Christ. Quickly, just a moment longer. Romans 5.8, God says that he demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.19 says that he loved us. Why? Because, or we loved him. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Colossians 3.2 says that what? About Christians, that we are holy, we're beloved, we're chosen. This is the testimony that God says over his people. And then we say, but enough of that. I need to hear something else. I need to move on to bigger and better things. I need proof. I need demonstration in this life. I need more than just mere words, Father. We move on to the question that's really at the heart of the matter. When will we feel that we've arrived? When will we feel validated? This is the temptation that we face every single day. When will we feel satisfied? When will we be validated? When will we truly feel the demonstration from the Father that, he is, that we are beloved in Him, in Christ? When will our relationship status change? That's maybe that's when we'll feel like we've arrived and been validated. When our children are older, maybe then. Maybe when we get a house or a nicer house, a better job. Maybe when we actually have children. When we have enough money. When we have the new job. We ask this question all the time. When will we truly feel the pleasure of the Lord in our lives and be validated? Maybe you think, well, that's just insecurities. I would say it's not insecurity always. Oftentimes the pursuit of validation is more, of, uh, it's more, of a, more than just a rejection of God's statement about you giving up the cross. Oftentimes it's far nastier. It's an attempt to garner undeserved praise in an unsavory manner. That's what it is. And you're saying, I want more than this pronouncement. I want more than this title. It's, it comes from our rebellious nature that wants to feed the idolatry in our hearts. We don't want to just be a little like God. We want to be God. This is what Satan was tempting Jesus with. Don't you just, don't you want to get to the next level? Aren't you tired of this? Don't you want to be validated? So perhaps you're not that ambitious. You don't want to be God. Maybe you just want to be more valued than the next guy, or the next gal. You might say, well, that's better, isn't it? No, it's hardly more palatable to God. Both of them are idolatrous, they're sinful, it's rebellion. And the heart's issue is the same. It's the same heart issue that Satan had. Last year we looked at the heart of Pharaoh. It's, a, it's the same heart of Pharaoh. He uses every resources, both animate and inanimate. Why? He rings it out on the altar of his glory. Like turning bread, stones to bread, and forcing people, or forcing angels rather, to to save you and manipulate them in some way and bowing down to, to Satan in order to save yourself some pain that you'll experience that God's led you to. It's all self-serving. It's the same way that Caesar and Nero treated those in his kingdom, specifically the Christians in this time. We're in, when we're in Christ, the pronouncement that is given to Jesus is also over us as well. In Christ, we are the beloved Son as well. And in us, He is also pleased because we are in Christ. As we sang earlier in the service, when you are not enough, we need something else. And the call for you this morning is this. Why, what are you tempted in? What else do you need? Is Jesus not enough? When we rest in him, when we truly rest in him, when we find our identity in him, when we repent of our sins and we turn to him and submit to his law and his leadership in our life, then and only then are we in Christ. And then we will find victory over sin. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Let's pray. Father, as we read this story, 
we're encouraged to be found in Christ. None of us enjoy that testimony. And when we face off against temptation, that we were able to be victorious. And yet Jesus was. We so long to hear the pronouncement that you gave to your son, that you are pleased in him. And while at the same time you've offered that to us as well. So we pray this morning that we would truly be found in Jesus this morning. And that we would relish and enjoy that he is enough. Would we find that we are satisfied? Would you break our hearts to that point and to that end? Father, if there's somebody here this morning that's not in you, they're not in Christ, they don't experience victory over temptation, they're in the wilderness and they're being devoured by the wolves, we pray that they would turn to you this morning. They would hear the good news of the gospel that they too would be found in you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen.